Alrighty. I hope you're hungry because we got lots of food after the service over there for you. So <laughs> you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 18 as we continue our study this morning in Matthew 18. just want to read our text for us out of, uh, or excuse me, Matthew 19, what am I saying? Looking at 18, Matthew 19. And uh, you're thinking, wow, he's going to teach it again. Okay. (laughs) Didn't get it the first time. Um, But follow along as I read Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him. And he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him uh, by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, I have, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, they are no longer two but one flesh whatever therefore God has joined together let no man separate and they said to him why did then Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away and he said to them because of the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits Adultery, And the disciples said, if such be the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For they're, they're given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let the one who is able to receive it, receive this, receive it. Last week, if you, if you remember, uh, we were looking at this and we realized that this long discourse on divorce follows a very long discourse on forgiveness. And we talked about the need for forgiveness within the confines of marriage. And a lot of times it's even greater than the 70 times 7 that God speaks of through uh, Peter when he asked Jesus how many times shall we forgive someone seven times and Jesus reply was 70 times uh, seven 70 times seven so it was a uh, indication that forgiveness is something that should continue it's an ongoing thing and we looked at the frequency of divorce in our society today and we basically boiled it down to three uh, reasons why marriages used to kind of hold together a little better than they do today. The first one was the family moral force. There was a moral force within the local family that held the marriages together. Secondly, we said that marriages were held together because of just the expectation of community. It was a scandal to get a divorce years ago. And then thirdly, and the most powerful one of all those, was the doctrine of the church. And we talked a little bit about even that today has kind of fallen by the wayside and people don't Uh, exalt marriage to the degree that it should be and therefore they don't condemn divorce to the point that it should be condemned 
But with that being said, we also said this. First of all, the first point that I made last week was God hates divorce. It's very clear in his word. In Malachi 2.16, he says it very clearly. He doesn't stutter. He doesn't, you know, he hates it. He didn't create Adam and Eve to get a divorce. That wasn't the plan. The plan was a lifelong union of lifelong intimacy, and he is against divorce. But with that being said, because if you're divorced and you're sitting here, you're probably thinking, oh, no, it's a condemnation. I also said divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And you have to understand that there's a lot of condemnation that goes out to divorced people who, unfortunately, they were just on the receiving end of a bad marriage. And if you're divorced, it doesn't mean that you're a second-class citizen or that you've blown it forever or anything like that. Uh, That seems to be the attitude sometimes, especially within the church, but that's just not true. God's mercy and God's forgiveness is available for you just as, as it is available to anyone else. And so if you're still married, you need to realize that God's plan for you is to stay married. If you're divorced, you need to realize that the mercy and forgiveness of God is available to you. Now, with that being said, we looked a little bit about the background of this new chapter that we were getting into. And in the very first verse, we noticed that it says, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, and we pointed out that whenever Jesus says, whenever the text says that about what Jesus is saying, it's concluding one of his discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And the discourse he's con- con- uh, concluding is the discourse on the childlikeness of the believer that we went through in Matthew 18. And so he finishes up that, and then he's on his way to Jerusalem, but he doesn't just go directly south. He goes a little southeast over into the land of uh, Judea and to a land known as Perea, which means beyond the Jordan River. And it was kind of a sparsely uh, populated land. But at this time of the year, we recalled that everybody was getting ready to go to Jerusalem for the Passover and celebrate. So this was a thoroughfare that most Jewish people would travel on. So they would have to go through this region. And so it just happened that Jesus was there ministering to people of Perea and also the the Jews that were on their way to Jerusalem. So once again, God provided a, a, a way, an avenue, for Jesus to minister to those in need. And that's what happened there. It says the crowds followed him and he healed them. Uh, Now, we talked about last week several reasons for marriage. One was procreation. It says be fruitful and multiply. One is pleasure. Um, From the beginning, it was God's command that that sexual relations be practiced within the confines of marriage. And uh, it's God's appointed way for a man and a woman to experience the physical joys of sex. And then thirdly, to preserve the human race. If people don't marry and people don't have kids, well, guess what's going to happen? We're going to come to a quick ending as a human race. So it's a continuation of the human race. Also, and this is all review. You can get get this all on the tape from last week. But it's divinely, the characteristics of marriage, we looked at this, it's divinely appointed by God. In other words, God established marriage. It's not up to the judges or the courts to figure out what marriage is or the definition of marriage. God defines it rather clearly. It's a divinely appointed union. It's also a physical union. It says that the man and the woman become one flesh. And uh, there's... We'll get into that a little bit today. But then also, it's a permanent union. It wasn't meant to be temporary. That's what our society thinks. There's no such things as trial marriages. And then lastly, we looked at, it's the idea that it's a union between one man and one woman. That's what the original language clearly 
indicates. It wasn't a group of people and you pick who you want to get married to. No, it was one man for one woman forever. That brought us to basically uh, our message today, the confrontation. We, we got down to about verse 3 and a little bit beyond and we were talking about how the Pharisees were always trying to trick Jesus. They were always trying to paint him in a corner and, and humiliate him publicly. That was just what they wanted to do because they were threatened by his ministry. They were threatened by who he was. They were threatened by his power. And we talked about how they calculated that they come to Jesus at this particular time with this particular answer in this particular region. Because this region once was, uh, or was ruled by Herod Antipas, who, if you remember, when John the Baptist spoke out about his illicit relationship with his, I think it was his brother's uh, wife, okay, he d- divorced and married his brother's wife, uh, and John the Baptist spoke out boldly about it, what did he do? He, had his, he basically had him arrested, thrown in prison, and eventually he had his head cut off. That's where it ended for John the Baptist. So the Pharisees are looking at this going, hey, maybe we can get the same deal with Jesus if we confront him with this idea of marriage and divorce. And so they start and they ask him, and the, the idea there is they're testing him. It's a malicious kind of test. It's not a test to prove the validity of something, but it's rather to test the invalidity of something. And the first question they ask is in verse 3. It says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. Now, what we want to look at today is how Jesus answers their question. It's a pretty bold question. It's not a I mean, you don't have to go into a lot of detail to answer that question. He could have said yes. He could have said no. But he didn't say yes or no. Matter of fact, he didn't really even answer their question if you stop and think about it. Instead of giving a direct yes or no answer, what Jesus does is he goes back into their tradition. He's talking to Pharisees, rabbis, and he talks about their rabbinical traditions. And he he even goes back further than that, all the way further back than the law of Moses. And he goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And his opening words had nothing really directly to do with the question of divorce. But really, they were almost a sarcastic rebuke to these, quote, keepers, learned Pharisees, the keepers of the law. They prided themselves in the great knowledge of Scripture. And look at how he begins his answer to them. If you don't see the sarcasm here, uh, I don't know what to say. He answered, he says, have you not read? What he's saying is, you should know this. Have you not read in the book of Genesis? Are you not aware that God himself, what he declares from the very beginning of creation? Don't you know the very first thing that God said about marriage? Don't you realize what he said about it? Don't you recall that he who created him created a male and female? And he goes on, he says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. What he's saying to these Pharisees is, Don't come picking a fight with me. The argument isn't with me. Your argument's not with me, it's with God. And he did that with them often. 
They would come to him about different things, healing on the Sabbath or whatever, and what would he say? It, it is written. Okay. He would always steer them back, away from what they taught, to what was written. That's the best way to deal with people. You have somebody that's raising an issue with you about a theological thing, go to the Bible, be able to back up what you believe, and point them to the verses. That's the best way to deal with somebody. Whether it's a false teacher, whether it's somebody who's even not a believer that doesn't believe in God, the best thing to do is steer them to the Scripture. Quote Scripture to them. Because that's where the power lies. The power doesn't lie in your attempt to kind of explain the issue or whatever. The power lies within the power of God. And that's what Jesus does here. I mean, this was a pretty volatile situation for him. I mean, he, he could have had the whole crowd turn on him. He could have been handed over to the authorities right here if he didn't handle this correctly. But he knew exactly what was going on. And he wanted to make sure that he put them almost kind of in their place. And so he said, have you not read? In other words, you should know this by now. And then he goes on and he gives God's view of marriage. That's not really what they asked. They were asking about divorce, right? And that's why we've been kind of taking some time to work through this because a lot of times people want to cut right to the chase. Just, just tell me if I can get divorced or not. I don't care about all this other stuff. Biblically, is it okay for me to get a divorce? Well, it depends on your view of marriage. And if your view is God's view of marriage, the answer would be no. But let's look, just take some time this morning and go through God's view of marriage. And we see this in verses 4 to 6. First of all, marriage involves an absolute definition. This isn't some vague thing that somebody just thought up. It's an absolutely defined relationship. And he, Jesus points out to them in verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created, in other words, God created them from the beginning, and he made them what? What's it say? Male and what? Female. One male and one female. He didn't make two males and one female, or, or two females and one male, or two males and two females, or three males and three females, and said, okay, just pick and kind of do whatever you... No, he didn't do that. There was a purpose. There was a definition of that relationship, that very first relationship that was created perfectly by God. And he created them male and female. And that emphatic position gives the sense in the original language of one male and one female for each other. That's so important to understand because today people want to define marriage about whatever. Well, two men can get married or two women can get married or, you know, I can marry my dog or cat or whatever. I mean, where's the stop? I mean, it's, it's kind of what we saw back in a couple presidencies ago when someone's saying, well, it depends. I guess it comes down to, you know, did I have sex with this person? It depends what your definition of is is. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, do you just want to pull your hair out if you have any? I'm safe in that 
However, my grandkids have very hairy arms. They're always fascinated by grandpa's hairy arms for some reason. I don't know. You don't have any hair on your head, but you have a lot of hair on your arms. I said, okay. But marriage involves an absolute definition. There is no provision. Do you understand this? There's no provision. There's not even a possibility for multiple or alternate spouses in the beginning as God created this. There was only one man and one female. That was it. And it was there for the very obvious reason. Because you know what? Divorce and remarriage was not an option in God's eyes. Marriage involves an absolute definition. And don't let anybody ever tell you anything different. See, and this is based upon the authority of God's word. The courts can go do whatever they want. Men can marry men and women can marry women. That's fine. That's that's not something that God recognizes as marriage. It's simply not. And it's become such a political pariah to, you know, that whole thing. I mean, you know, it's just, and Christians go after it, you know, tooth and nail. We've got to protect marriage. You know what? God's word protects marriage. I'm not looking at the courts to protect the sanctity of marriage. They're not going to do that. I mean, if they do, hey, great. I'll vote for the, the guy that's pro-marriage and, 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 you know, a man and a woman, lifelong union. I mean, that's great. I'll support somebody like that. But I'm not going to look to them to set the standard for marriage. God has already done it. So many times it seems like the church is trying to catch up to what God has already done. It's like prayer in schools. You always hear, oh, you know, it's just horrible. They took prayer out of schools. I thought, you know, yeah, that was a bad thing. I, in my view, I think that it should be allowed. But that's what they did. That doesn't mean you can't pray in schools. I mean, who says you can't pray in school? How are they going to know if you're praying? I mean, you know, it, it, it goes back to the whole political thing. So we have to be aware of these things and not, you know, be so politically active that we're overlooking the obvious. Marriage involves absolute definition. It's one male for one female, period. That's it. Secondly, marriage involves absolute commitment. It's a commitment. He says in verse 5, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. That applies both to men and women. Both leave their father and mother, and they come together as a married couple. They're to each leave home and leave their old life behind, and let go of previous loyalties and commit fully to one another. That's what marriage is in God's eyes. When a person gets married, they're really saying to their spouse, you're my top priority now. Nothing else will interfere with this. You are my top priority. Outside of God, you're number one, period. That means that you close the door on all other possibilities, period. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how good a friend you were with this person before you got married. If they're coming between you and your husband, in between you and your husband, that's wrong. That relationship is wrong. So we have to be aware of that. 
Do you know what starts marital strife? Do you know what starts the decline of a marriage relationship? It's very simple. It's not rocket science. It's when your spouse stops being your top priority. It's when your spouse stops being your top priority. When you decide that your money or your work or the yard or the laundry or even the kids, the children, become more important than your mate. That's a definite step down in your marriage relationship. When getting attention from someone else other than your spouse becomes more important. When feeling good or feeling unshackled becomes more important than making your mate happy, your spouse happy. See, God's view of marriage is simply this, is that your mate be your top priority, your spouse be number one as far as relationships go. And as long as your mate is your top priority, you can weather any storm. You really can. Jesus said clearly, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. And shall what? Cleave to his wife. You've heard it. Leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. You've heard it over and over and over. Now, do you ever think about this? Adam and Eve had no parents. (laughs) They had no parents. Why would God point this out? Why would God tell them to leave and cleave when they couldn't? Well, I really believe this was a principle that God was putting in place to be projected into all future generations. Because all future generations were going to have a father and a mother. And I think that it's even a lesson for Adam and Eve that one day your little kids are going to get married, grow up, get married. And when they do, they're going to leave. And for parents, you know what? We need to be okay with that. I mean, you know, I miss my daughter, my son-in-law, and the grandkids greatly. I just, you know, love them. I just love to be around them and try to, try to do that whenever I can. You know, they live on the other side of the, of the country. They live in D.C. now, Washington, D.C. And it makes it tough. You know, we see them maybe twice a year. And they're growing up, and, you know, whenever I'm back there, I'm thinking, boy, I just wish I could be around more, you know. I could play ball with Mason, teach him all these things. And I'm thinking, boy, that would be so fun. That'd be so cool. But you know what? That's not in the cards right now. That's not what God has for us. And when I really look at it, I think it's by God's design. It's by God's design. He's saying, you know what? If Crystal and Will lived across the street from you, it'd be kind of hard for them to leave and cleave. (laughs) And they need right now, they need to leave and cleave as much as they can and set up their little household the best they can. And then all of a sudden, when you're around, it's not not a threat. See, the problem with a lot of families is they're so close, they never grow apart. I mean, I'm all for family, but I'm just saying that when one enters into the marriage relationship, it involves a commitment, and that commitment is to that other person, that spouse. All other commitments fall by the wayside. And the other thing that happens a lot of times in marriages is the kids get in the way. 
And by that I mean the kids become the top priority in any family. And so it's all about the children. It's all about the kids. And that's not right. That's not even biblical. I mean, I'm pro-kids and love kids and, you know, want want you to be the best parent you can be. But don't you ever allow that child to become an obstacle between you and your wife. Or you'll definitely see the marriage kind of go into a spiral downward. It's just not right. The commitment needs to be between you and your spouse. And that needs to be maintained. That Hebrew word there, cleave, it refers to a strong uh, bonding together. Have you seen these commercials on TV where the the guy takes, it's not super glue, it's called something else now, I don't know what it is, but he's on a dock and he takes this glue and he just glues two pieces of wood together with a a skier on this rope and and the guy takes off and it actually holds the thing together and the skier is able to ski across the lake because of this super duper glue they have now. That's where the idea here, it's this idea of representing something gluing or cementing together. I like to even use the word kind of epoxy. You ever used epoxy? You know, you take the two elements and you, you, you mix them together. And what happens? They heat up. And then you put it on whatever you want to glue together. And when you put those objects, those objects together, what happens is they, they actually almost become one object. Because it literally just kind of fuses them. It melts them together. Job used this word when he spoke of his bones clinging to his skin and flesh. The two ideas were really sometimes carried together as, as in Ruth's clinging to Naomi, remember, in the book of Ruth. That's the idea. They're just bonded together. Or the men of Judah remaining steadfast to David. Uh, several times the terms used of the Israelites, Israelites holding to the, to, the lo- to the Lord in love and obedience. It's the same term that's used in those con- contexts. The idea of a close bonding, an interrelationship. That's really even seen in the modern idea and word in Hebrew for marriage. It's, it's, it's a word that's closely associated with the term holy or sanctified. In other words, it's set apart. It's consecrated. That's the kind of commitment we're talking about. It's a consecration of a husband and a wife to each other, as well as to God. See, marriage is always, as God intended, always involves the total commitment and total consecration of husbands and wives to each other and to Him. And as the divine author of their union and witness of their covenant, He didn't really... Look for divorce to be an option. That's just the way it was. So marriage involves absolute definition. We know what it is, a male and a female. It also involves absolute commitment. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, the third thing that we see God's view of marriage involves is absolute unity. Because he says in verse 5, he goes on, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. And then what's he say? Be united or cleave, be united to his wife, 
And then it says, the two will become what? One flesh. There's a unity within God's view of marriage. Obviously, there's a physical unity between a wife and a husband. But he's also referring, I think, to a spiritual unity. To a bonding of the souls just as well. God's view of marriage is for married people to be connected at both levels. I mean, marriage is much, much more than just a sexual relationship. I mean, every married person knows that. I heard this joke. There was an unhappy couple. They were just, just going through it in their marriage. And they went to a marriage counselor. And he told the couple this. He said, my wife and I are happily married, and I'll tell you why. For the last 20 years, three times a week, I clear my schedule, I disconnect the phone, and I kiss that woman passionately. It's kept her happy, and it will keep your happy, and you keep your wife happy too. The husband says, well, whatever you say, Doc. What days do you want me to bring her in? I think he missed the point. Okay, God's, God's plan for marriage is that it's a physical union, but it's also a spiritual union. Both are to remain the priority throughout the course of marriage. He said, Jesus said, the two become one flesh. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he's talking about spouses belonging to each other in a physical relationship of marriage. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, what the wife does. Consequently, Jesus says, when a man and a woman are joined together in marriage, they are no longer two separate people, but they're one flesh. They're therefore indivisible, inseparable, except through death. That's why at the end of a marriage ceremony, you say what? Till death do us part. In the eyes of God, they become the total possession of each other. In mind, in spirit, in goals, in direction, in emotion, will, everything. And then when they have children, they become the perfect kind of symbol or emblem or demonstration of their oneness. That child carries the unique product of the fusion of two people into one flesh and carries the combined traits of both parents. Amazing. Miraculous. But don't carry that too far. Some foolishly argue that becoming one flesh in the act of sex is what constitutes marriage. No, it doesn't. I've heard that said by pastors, and I thought, what are they thinking? I mean, if that were true, there'd be no such thing as fornication. Because as soon as an unmarried man and woman engaged in a sexual act, they'd be automatically married. Rather than guilty of wickedness. See, under the Mosaic law, the act of fornication 
obligated the man to marry the woman or pay compensation to his father. You can see that in Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. That even indicates further that the sexual act itself is not equivalent to marriage. On the other hand, the act of adultery, and listen to this, shattering as it is to a marriage relationship, does not in itself dissolve a marriage. It just doesn't. Marriage is a mutual commitment. It's a God-ordained obligation between a man and a woman to lifelong companionship. How do you know that? Well, in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, when rebuking the Israelites for their adultery and their frequent divorces, the Lord declared that by divorcing his wife, a man dealt treacherously with her. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See, in God's eyes, every wife is a wife by covenant. Never merely a wife by fornication or convenience or whatever. And don't neglect this aspect of your marriage. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians, once again, chapter 7, he said, verse, verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you. Marriage involves an absolute unity between two people, a male and a female. And it's a commitment, and that's the way God defines it. The fourth thing that we see here in God's view about marriage, in verse 6, he points out very clearly, he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let what? Man not separate. Let no man separate. Marriage involves absolute reverence. Absolute reverence. The message here is that God created this union. He created it. He has ordained it. And it's to be treated as something holy. It's not to be treated in an unholy manner. Our attitude toward marriage should be that it is just more than a living arrangement. More than just a business arrangement. More than just a partnership. It is a union, literally, that God created, and He ordained, and He's blessed. And because of that, we have to take it seriously. We have to treat it reverently. Before, as well as after. So many times people come in marriage, pre-marriage counseling, you know, they're so serious and they're, you know, and then, you know, you see them two years after their marriage and it's like, it's like they didn't even go through any counseling. Doesn't matter now, they got, you know, caught what they wanted and that's it. A couple was going through a grocery store and they're about ready to celebrate their 48th wedding anniversary. And as they were checking out, they mentioned to the clerk, who was checking him out, and uh, the clerk said, you know what, I can't think of anyone that I would want to live with for 48 years. And the woman wisely replied, well, don't marry until you do. See, that's so foreign to our society. That's just so foreign. 
Marriage is for keeps, beloved. That's the attitude which we must approach it with. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. I understand that. Divorce is a fact in our lives today. Even though it's true that God hates divorce, I want to make it clear that if you're divorced, God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He's forgiven you. He wants to forgive you. Regardless of any mistakes that maybe you made in your past, it's irrelevant. Jesus says that in a creative sense, think of this, every marriage really is made in heaven. (laughs) You kind of may sit there and chuckle, not mine. But in God's eyes, it is. In God's eyes, it is. From the very first marriage of Adam and Eve, God has joined every husband and wife. See, this is so foreign even to, to, to folks within the church. Marriage is, first of all, God's institution. He's the one that created it. And it's God's doing, regardless of how men may take it and corrupt it, deny it, disregard it, whatever. Whether it's between faithful believers or whether it's between rank pagans or atheists. Whether it was arranged by parents or by mutual desire. And the consent of the bride and the groom. Marriage as a general social relationship is above all the plan and work of God for procreation, for pleasure, and for the preservation of the race. That even goes on further and it says... You know, I want to say to you that it's even whether you've entered into it wisely or foolishly, sincerely or insincerely, selfishly or unselfishly, with great or little commitment. God's design for every marriage is that it be permanent until the death of one of the spouses. That's it. God engineered men and women to complement, to support, to give joy to each other, through the mutual commitment of the marriage bond. And it's by his divine hand that they're created to fulfill each other. See, I think we give ourselves more credit than we deserve. God knows the absolute best for us when it comes to marriage. He knows our gifting. He knows our personality. He knows us better than anybody, including ourselves. And he also knows your future spouse. You know, if you're not married here today and you're looking to get married, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. God's going to find you the perfect mate. You don't need to be, you know, out there, you know, dating sites and on the internet and trying to hook up with here or going to nightclubs. Or, you don't need to do that stuff. God knows your needs. God knows your needs emotionally, physically, spiritually. And he knows the right time he's going to bring the appropriate person across your path if that's his plan. Don't discount that. Have faith that God knows what he's doing. Trust in his sovereign hand in your your relationship and in your walk. If you're not married, there must be a reason right now you're not married. It's not within God's plan. It's not within his divine plan right now for you to have a spouse irrespective of your circumstances. He knows what he's doing, beloved. And it's only when people push the threshold of, well, you know what, I'm tired of waiting, I just got to go do this. 
get this done. This will meet my need. And you hurry it along and you go down that road and you end up with a world of hurt in the long run. I mean, everything we experience within the confines of marriage is a miraculous blessing of God because he's the one that created it. There's no good thing in marriage that does not come from God himself. doesn't matter whether you believe or not. One commentator likened it to this. He said, No child can be conceived by the procreative act of a man and a woman who is not first conceived by the creative act of God. And then he says, Every marriage and every child is a creation of God. And therefore, divorce and abortion share this tragically evil common denominator. They kill a creation of God. To destroy a marriage is to destroy a creation of the Almighty God. Jesus warned, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That word separate, which is in the context of marriage, always carries with it the idea of divorce. That doesn't mean, oh, you're just going to separate separate temporarily. That's not what that's saying. It's talking about divorce. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul is clearly speaking of divorce, it's translated leave. Jesus' point is that marriage is always the work of God. Listen to this. Marriage is always the work of God. And divorce is always the work of man. That's just the way it is. No man, whoever he is, or wherever he is, or for whatever reason he may have, has the right to separate what God has joined together. That's what he's saying here. We may not like it, but that's what he's saying. A pagan husband and a a pagan wife, somebody who doesn't know Christ from a, a bird in a tree, who divorces, you know what? They break God's law, just as sure as believers who divorce break God's law. In the ultimate sense, every marriage is ordained of God and every divorce is not. Sounds pretty narrow, but I think that's what the Bible teaches. At best, divorce and remarriage is not only permitted by the Lord, or it's only permitted by the Lord, I should say, it's never commended, it's never commanded As some of Jesus' rabbis in his society taught, well, you could get a divorce for this reason or that reason or whatever, you could do whatever you want. They didn't have a high view of marriage, is why they had such a high view of divorce, high rate of divorce. Jesus said, God permits it only on the basis of sexual immorality. And even then, as a gracious concession to man's sinfulness. See, I've heard Christians say this sometimes, and it just grieves my heart. They say, well, you know what? The Lord led me out of that marriage, and now he led me to this. No. That makes God a liar when you say things like that. I'm not saying divorce doesn't happen. Sometimes you're on the short end of the deal. It has nothing to do with you. I understand that. Like I said before, God hates divorce, but you know what? That doesn't mean that he hates you. And it doesn't mean that you have to 
be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God and that he doesn't forgive you and he doesn't restore you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just trying to teach you what the scriptures are saying. Jesus clearly mentions all the way back to Genesis, but you can go throughout the Old Testament and you can learn about the divine sanctity and the permanence of marriage. I mean, just look at the commandments of the ten. Two of them specifically protect the sanctity of marriage. The one against the physical act of adultery. The other against coveting a neighbor's wife, which is the mental act of adultery, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, adultery was such a horrible sin that its punishment was death. It was death. God made no legal provision for divorce. He just didn't. Well, I thought adultery could bring the end of a marriage. Yeah, by execution. (laughs) Not by divorce. That's why I said it's a physical union. To death do us part. See, that, that raises it way up. On the, on the, on our, our, where we have our standards today. It puts it on the top shelf. Well, that didn't really suit their needs. <laughs> so in verse 7, they come up with another question. That just kind of took them back. In verse 7, they said, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, wait a minute, you're saying that there's no option here, but I know that that it happened in the Old Testament, they were given certificates of divorce. And they thought for sure he was going to appeal to Scripture here. And the Pharisees were prepared with his first answer, And they gave what they considered to be a scriptural rebuttal. They went toe-to-toe with the king of kings over scripture. They were so intent, beloved, on defending their own fleshly standards and on trying to discredit and destroy Jesus that they they totally disregarded what he had just said. It's like it just went in one ear and out the other. They were not at all interested in the divine standard for marriage. They could care less. God had established at creation that divine standard. But they were just so fixated on defending their own low self-centered standards. They were classic examples of the natural man looking for a moral or spiritual loophole to accommodate their own sin. To give the appearance of divine support for their liberal divorce customs, what they do? They appealed to Moses. And they thought, okay, you know what we're going to do? We'll, we'll put Jesus up against the great lawgiver Moses. See what happens then. If you know anything about that passage in Deuteronomy 24, which they referred to in verse 7, about the certificate of divorce, if you go back there and study that, I encourage you to look at it this next week. Because it's the only passage in the five books of Moses that mentions any grounds for divorce. It's the only one. 
The passage to which the Pharisees referred to was in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. What's interesting is that passage clearly does not command divorce, as the Pharisees claimed. And really, when you look at it, all the other passages that mention divorce simply acknowledge its existence, that it happened. But when you sit down and you read through Deuteronomy 24, you're going to see that the text is going to show far from commanding divorce, the passage does not teach about divorce at all. That's how blinded these people were. Moses was giving a command with regard to a particular case of remarriage. And that passage neither commends or condemns the reason and the procedure for divorce mentioned there. It states that the reason was simply indecency. Well, we don't have any details of what that means. And it mentions that a giving, there was a giving of a certificate of divorce. But it didn't really talk about the procedure. The only command in that passage relates to the issue of remarriage, not divorce. And the command is simply that if a divorced woman remarries and that husband divorces her or dies the first, if the divorced woman remarries and the first husband divorces or dies, her first former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife because she's been defiled. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about remarriage. It is to that commandment regarding remarriage, not a command to divorce, that Jesus even refers to in Mark 10.5. Because stop and think about it. The penalty for adultery was what? Death. It was execution. So the indecency here mentioned in, in Deuteronomy 24 obviously referred to some other kind of sexual looseness or lewdness or something, but it fell short of adultery. Because if it was adultery, they would have been executed. And because her divorce to her first husband had no sufficient grounds because it wasn't for adultery, it just said indecency, she became an adulteress. And therefore she was defiled. And so when she married again. And therefore, that's what, you know, the whole idea behind John the Baptist, that's what he was trying to point out to Herod when he got in all his trouble. Well, he gives here quickly God's view of divorce. First of all, God's view of divorce is divorce is caused by sin. He says, he answers them, and he says in verse 8, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He allowed it. He didn't command it. Divorce is always caused by sin. Always. Always. There's a hardness of the heart that sets in. I've had occasion throughout my ministry to talk to two Christians and having marital problems, and they're just both set on divorce. And no matter how much you reason from or from the Scripture, they don't want to hear it. They just don't care. They don't love each other anymore. They don't, you know. <laughs> they're just 
They're, they're, they're so, so focused on ending the pain of their relationship. They don't care what it takes. Divorce is always caused by sin. So he clarifies that it's not a command by Moses, but he allowed it. He permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. And God sometimes just acts graciously. I mean, stop and think about it. Because of his loving grace, God did not always act with the death penalty for adultery. He could have, but he didn't. David was strongly rebuked and severely punished for his adultery with Bathsheba, but he wasn't put to death. Solomon, who had a virtual ongoing adultery, he had hundreds of wives and concubines overriding the whole one-man, one-woman standard set by in Genesis. Yet, like his father David, he did not suffer the death penalty. Even the Jewish exiles returned from the 70 years captivity in Babylon and were seeking to restore the temple and to begin living according to God's word. They were brought face to face with the problem of their intermarriages in pagan women. Consequently, under Ezra, we looked at this briefly when we went through Haggai, they decided that they would put away their unbelieving wives and the children born on those marriages based on the commandment of our God and according to law, it says in Ezra 10.3. There's no record that this action was specifically approved by God at all. But God allowed it. It's always caused by sin. Secondly, divorce is always against God's plan. He says there, it's not this way from the beginning, but it wasn't, from the beginning it was not so. Divorce is always, always against God's plan. I mean, you can dream up any kind of scenario in your mind. It's always against the plan of God. I mean, we, we may not want to hear that, but that's, that's what Scripture leads us to believe. Does he allow for it? Yes. But ideally, ideally, when you're in a situation, you have to stop and you have to ask God, Lord, what would give you the most glory in this situation? And then the third point there, and we'll, we'll close there and continue this next week, but there's always, there's allowances for Divorce based on immorality. It's not commanded, but it's allowance. I've, I've met Christian couples who've said this right to my face. If my husband ever cheated on me, I'd divorce him in two seconds. He'd be gone. He'd be out of the house. Done. I'm thinking, whoa. What, where's the grace in that? I mean, I understand what they're doing. They're building up such a Fear that you know the husband hopefully will never go there, but it can go both ways. See, that's not that's not a Christian attitude to have. It's just not. Matter of fact, in Matthew eighteen it says, "You know what? We need to be forgiving, especially of our brothers and sisters in Christ." So, no matter what you're going through in your marriage, I don't care what it is. 
You know, even, you know, I would even go on to say is, you know, you're, you're in, say you have a husband who's, who's physically abusive to you, emotionally abusive to you. I'm, maybe you need to separate yourself from that environment so that you're not harmed physically or emotionally. But I don't think that just gives you the right to march off to the judge and get a divorce. I just don't. It's not what the Bible says. Those are hard words, but I think that's what the Scripture teaches us. We're so quick to, to take the easy way out, and yet God clearly has another standard. We'll continue this next week. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. And in my closing prayer, I'm also going to bless the food, and then we'll have uh, Kayla come up and uh, pray for her. So, Father, we come to you today, and, Lord, we... Thank you for your, your word, and thank you for Jesus' words dealing with divorce and marriage. And Lord, it's such a deep subject. I mean, we're not even doing it justice here just in two messages, and we'll continue this next week. But Lord, I pray that today um, we would clearly understand that more than anything, Father, you do have a view of marriage that far outweighs ours. Lord, you have a certain definition, absolute definition, absolute commitment. It involves an absolute unity and an absolute reverence. Lord, if we can just grasp that, no matter what kind of marriage we're in, Lord, it's not your design for us to divorce. It never is, never has been. You've allowed it by your gracious hand on occasion. But that shouldn't be the standard. We should expect you to work in a mighty way that you could draw those hearts that are going down that road that are maybe separating slowly due to whatever reason. Pray that they would find forgiveness in their hearts for one another, that you would draw them back to the the day they first met each other and renew their emotions and their love for one another. That you would hold that bond together by your grace as a testimony of your love and your forgiveness. Father, for any here who have gone through the, the unfortunate situation of divorce, Lord, we're not here to condemn anybody. Lord, you, you love people irregardless of their background, irregardless of even their behavior. Because you're a gracious God and you want us to serve you in a loving way. But Father, going through a situation like that does cause harm. It does leave scars. It does maybe leave occasionally bitterness. Father, I pray that we would look to you to restore, to heal. Don't allow us to buy into the enemy's lie that, oh, because we went through a divorce, we're, we just never will measure up. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. My Bible says that when you come into Christ, all things have been made new. Old things are passed away. That he transforms you into a new being. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray this morning that you would just bless this to our hearts. And I pray that if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, that they would cry out to you, Lord, knowing that you're the source of life. You're the source of eternal life. Be merciful to me, a God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would just, as a a holy God, reach out to them, touch their hearts, cause them to repent.
turn to you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.